This is an ABC podcast. Hi, and welcome to The Health Report with me, Olivia Willis. I'm sitting in for Norman Swan today with a special edition of the program looking at women's health and women in medicine ahead of International Women's Day this Friday. Today on the program, medicine's gaping gender gap. 60% of Australian medical students are women, and yet they account for just 13% of senior surgeons. So what's driving women out of the operating theatre? Plus, the women's health tech boom. Women are increasingly using apps to track their menstrual cycle and to monitor their health. But we're handing over a lot of, well, very sensitive information in the process. So should we be worried? More on that later in the show. But first up, cervical cancer. Australia is on track to become the first country in the world to eliminate cervical cancer, a disease that kills a quarter of a million women around the world every year. The World Health Organization has dubbed it one of the gravest threats to women's lives. And last year, it called for global efforts to scale up vaccination and screening programs. Now, an Australian team is working with local health clinics in Malaysia to deliver cervical screening. And they're taking an innovative approach, using self-collected HPV or human papillomavirus tests to overcome cultural barriers. Associate Professor Marion Saville is Executive Director of the VCS Foundation, a leading non-profit helping to deliver the project, and I spoke with her earlier. Marion, welcome to The Health Report. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the situation here at home. Australia is on track to eliminate cervical cancer. Presumably that's because of our national immunisation program, but also because of the changes to the national screening program in 2017. That's when we went from uh, pap smears to HPV tests. Yeah, that's right. So it's a combination of very high and early HPV vaccination compared to other countries around the world, together with our change from cytology-based screening to HPV-based screening, which is predicted to give us about 30% better incidence and mortality than we currently have. So when you bring that together with vaccination, we should have cervix cancer down to a rate that's considered eliminated as a public health problem in 2035. Okay, so it's a pretty optimistic picture, really, for us. Uh, but in many parts of the world, that's not the case. There were nearly 600,000 new cases of cervical cancer last year. Where do we need to scale up vaccine coverage and screening programs? So this is really an equity problem. We've controlled cervix cancer with screening historically, and we've added to that with vaccination. And I think it's so uncommon in Australia, this cancer now, that most people don't know anyone who's had it. But you don't need to go far from Australia to see where that is not the case, where those preventative services have not been available. So this is really a problem, particularly in low and middle income countries. In our region, Papua New Guinea, many of the uh, countries of the Pacific Islands and up into Asia are struggling to provide the services to prevent this cancer. Treatment remains a problem, so radiotherapy is critical and palliative care is critical. Many of these women are dying terrible deaths without adequate pain control and with quite a lot of social isolation and in some settings it's quite a shameful cancer. And is it about lack of resources, cost of vaccine? What's the kind of major barriers to yeah, access? Yeah, at its heart it's a resourcing problem. There are also systems problems and expertise problems. And I think one of the obligations we have in Australia, having really had access to good political support and good funding, is to offer our expertise to our neighbours. Are there countries around the world where, because of cultural barriers, mm. access to screening remains an issue? 
We see that to a certain extent in Australia. We know from our Victorian work that 80% of women who get cervix cancer in Australia either haven't been screened or are very overdue with their screening. And that is culturally driven, but it's not one culture. Having done quite a few studies on this, I think women who are traumatised in any way, whether they're economically deprived, whether they've had difficult family circumstances, and some women there are religious reasons, it's just too much vulnerability to lie on your back and get the speculum put in. That's really challenging in a number of countries and also populations here in Australia. And one of the ways that VCS is trying to deliver these kind of prevention services where they're really needed is in a program in Malaysia that you're involved in. Can you tell me a little bit about what the program is? It's at a pilot stage at the moment. So we've just completed a pilot and we are trying to establish more of a program and we're trying to move to scale. Project Rose, as it was called, is very much a partnership and it has been an absolute pleasure to work with Prof Wu Yinling from the University of Malaya. She's a gynae oncologist. She's Malaysian, but she trained in Cambridge and she came home and found unexpectedly high rates of cancer that she was treating. So we've partnered with her and her team over there to understand their setting and we've brought our technical expertise. But together we visited the public clinics where this is needed and we really designed a solution after talking to nurses and doctors in those clinics and trying things out. And a big part of that project is a self-collection process, right? So it's HPV self-tests. So there's three components to the way this is being delivered. First of all, we're primary screening with an HPV test that is self-collected by the woman. We've also used our population health and our digital health expertise to write a small registry program for them. What we found in Malaysia is working through the post was never going to work. So we ended up with a system where the nurses could use their own mobile phones and register women, including the woman's telephone number. That's meant that after the woman returns her sample, she's getting her result as a text message to her phone within a couple of days. If the test is positive, the message invites her to call the clinic for follow-up. And that's been the thing that's been really different to other pilots around the world. We've got 99% of test-positive women in active follow-up. How many women in Malaysia are currently getting screened? So we think about 25% of Malaysian women have ever had a pap smear in their program, which is about 50 years old. And with the self-collected samples, so how does that work? Presumably women take a sample from their own vagina and then that's tested and then they're provided the results through a text that's message. That's right, yeah. And did you find that you were able to process more women because the testing process is quicker by just going in and out themselves rather than having the consultation yeah. with a practitioner? Yeah, so the clinics we went into and there these clinics are all throughout Malaysia are incredibly overcrowded and there are usually several consultations going on in a room. So deciding to take a pap smear means uh, the nurse has to walk the patient to a dedicated room which is at the back. In the clinics we visited, it was also where they did the laundry. It really was quite difficult. It's going to be at least 20 minutes for the nurse to do that and get over the cultural barriers. So we had reports saying we were lucky to do four or five paps in a day, but we're screening 50 women a day with the new approach. It's transformed their attitude to screening and their sense that they can achieve what they need to achieve. And how effective is it in contrast to a HPV test? Sorry, in contrast to a practitioner collected collected sample, sample, yeah. So the really good news is that a meta-analysis come out recently by Mike Arben and colleagues, and what that shows is that for the detection of the precancerous abnormalities that we want to find, there is no difference in sensitivity. 
So this self-collected sample performs as well as a nurse or doctor collected sample. It is so exciting for the global picture because it is highly scalable in a way the practitioner collected samples aren't. And a lot of people, women might not be aware that this self-collection process is currently available in Australia. And as I understand, we were the first country to roll it out as part of a national screening program. Why was that decision made that this was an important aspect of getting women screened and of targeting women that are under-screened or not screened at all? Sure, because we know this is a huge driver in preventing the cancers we're not already preventing. And we also know there's an equity issue in our cervical screening program. So women who come from lower socioeconomic settings, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, women from some other culturally and linguistically diverse communities do not screen as often or as well as other Australian women and are more likely to get cancer. Associate Professor Marion Saville is Executive Director of the VCS Foundation. You're listening to The Health Report here on RN, ABC News and CBC Radio across Canada. I'm Olivia Willis, sitting in for Norman Swan. Why do women leave surgical training? It's a question Australian researchers recently posed in a study published in The Lancet. And, well, it's a pertinent one. 60% of Australian medical students are women, and yet women account for just 13% of senior surgeons. So why the gender gap? And what progress have we made since 2015, when the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons vowed to do better in the wake of a series of damning reports of sexual harassment and bullying? To answer that question and a few more, I spoke with three women on the front line of the battle for gender equality in medicine. Dr Ria Liang is a general surgeon and incoming chair of the Operating with Respect Committee at the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. Dr Christine Lai is an Adelaide-based surgeon and chair of the Women in Surgery section, also at the College of Surgeons. And Dr Josephine DeCosta is an intern at the Royal Darwin Hospital and CEO of Level Medicine, an organisation that engages medical students and doctors in discussions about gender-based issues. Ria and Christine were in our Gold Coast and Melbourne studios and Josephine was on Skype from Darwin. And just a warning, this discussion includes some sexual references. Ria, Christine, Josephine, welcome to The Health Report. Thanks so much for joining me. It's our Thank pleasure. You. Ria, I might start with you. You led this research recently published in The Lancet looking at why women leave surgical training and you went straight to the source. You interviewed women in Australia and New Zealand who have left. What did these women tell you? They told us that the lived experience of women in surgery is surprisingly universal in that we have unacceptably high experience of genderised behaviours such as harassment and discrimination. But in addition to that, they told us that there are wider factors that aren't limited to women that are also widespread and that all of these stack up together like a big tower of blocks that then becomes far too much, topples over and causes women to leave surgery. And what are some of those factors, the ones affecting surgical trainees regardless of their gender, as you say, but then also the ones that are more specific to women? Well, the thing is, things that used to be considered a female factor, such as child-rearing, are increasingly balanced across the two genders as we move into the 21st century. And then there are common features such as long work hours and fatigue and the need to relocate frequently to different locations of training. They affect all genders. The experience of sexual discrimination and harassment is not limited just to women, but is much more experienced by women. And the data from the College of Surgeons' own EAG study suggests that one in five women have experienced sexual harassment or discrimination. 
the reason why some of our efforts to help trainees and in particular women haven't been very successful to now is because we're always concentrating on one or two things, resilience, wellness, part-time training, advocacy for women, that sort of thing. But the thing is, everyone is building their own individual tower of blocks. The blocks that actually make up their tower may be quite different from one person to another, from one woman to another. So we have to work in much more coordinated ways. And it's true that when they're all stacking up, that very small things, so um, an unacceptable interaction with a senior person or having a leave application knocked back, those things were the final straw that caused women to leave. Conversely, when we asked the women, so what might have kept you in surgery, they were also equally apparently small things. You know, if someone had just picked up the phone and had some encouraging words if someone had sat down over a cup of tea and, and had a chat to me, you know, if I could just have talked to another woman who'd been through the same thing. Th those were the sorts of things. And so it's quite hopeful in a way that even though we've got a lot of work to do to work much more broadly and in a multifactorial way, in actual fact, there are things that all of us can do on a daily level to help out our colleagues and our seniors and our juniors. Josephine, I want to come to you. In the Lancet paper, there was some pretty, you know, horrendous kind of accounts or stories of sexual harassment that these women had experienced and certainly sexist attitudes and behaviours that they'd encountered. In one account, there was a woman who recalls a senior surgeon saying to a junior female surgical trainee, and I quote, I don't think there's any point in me training you because you're going to get married and have kids and then what use are you going to be to this surgical service? There was another account that the hospital in which a young surgical trainee worked, there was a picture of sex positions on the wall. You're just embarking in your medical career. How many of your female peers do you think have experiences like these? Unfortunately, those experiences are still really quite common, particularly around gender, but around all kinds of related issues in terms of intersectionality and, and diversity. As a profession, it does feel like we're in a state of transition and we are moving to improve all of these issues, but those kinds of interactions are very prevalent. Christine, I wanted to ask you about the fear of repercussion of surgical trainees reporting bad behaviour. That was certainly a theme that came up in Ria's research and you'll no doubt recall, I think it was in 2015 when Dr Gabrielle McMullen, a leading Sydney surgeon, essentially said that complaining about sexual harassment could ruin a trainee's career. So she was talking about the case of a female neurosurgical mm -hmm. trainee who was being repeatedly asked to go into the rooms of her mentor, a male senior surgeon at night. When she finally did, he attempted to sexually assault her and, and she rebuffed his advances. And in response, he started to give her bad reports. Dr. McMullen said in that instance that the trainee would have been better to give him a blowjob than make a complaint. Obviously, at the time, that rightfully caused quite a stir, but the research shows that this kind of fear of repercussion is still one of the reasons why women are not speaking up. Is there a problem in how trainees are able to report complaints? I'd say that's definitely not the case. So after that event in 2015, the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons established the Expert Advisory Group and also set up a complaints hotline and quite a confidential process in which if any person experiences any bad behaviour by a member of the College of Surgeons, they can contact this particular hotline to make a complaint and it will then get dealt with by the College of Surgeons. So I guess from what you're saying, it sounds like there might be a perception that their complaints may not be dealt with by the college 
in a confidential manner, but it is a very good and robust process that we have to deal with these matters. If a complaint isn't made, the college can't do anything about it to help that individual, unfortunately. Is there, though, a sense, do you think, amongst, and maybe, Josephine, this is a question for you, do you think there is a sense amongst young trainees that there is kind of an attitude of put your head down and get on with the job and put up with whatever behaviour you're encountering because part of training is to kind of toughen you up a little bit? I think there definitely has been that sense for a long time. But this is what I was trying to say about it being in a state of transition. A lot of that culture is beginning to change. So things that might in the past have been ignored and that female trainees might have said, oh, look, you know, this is just about me toughening up and getting on with the job, proving that I can do it. I think people are starting to utilise all of those things that Dr Lai has just raised and all of those mechanisms that are now available. And Christine, on the back of the expert advisory group that was set up following those kind of revelations of bullying and belittling in surgical practice, what are some of the other things that the college has put in place to address some of these kind of gender-based issues? Well, the RACS developed the Diversity and Inclusion Plan, which certainly one of the objectives that the Women in Surgery Group was very involved with is looking at gender equity. So there have been targets and guidelines set for increasing the representation of women in the surgical training program across all specialties. And we're aiming to get 40% of women being successful applicants in surgical training programs by 2021. We've also looked at getting more role models in positions of leadership. So when you look at women and men in um, surgical committees in our college, there are now 27% of women on those uh, main committees. And also um, I was informed yesterday that the numbers of women applying for surgical training have increased. So last year, one out of three applicants were women, which has gradually been climbing over the last few years. And 35% of successful trainees were women. So it's very encouraging that despite the previous bad press about the culture in surgery, there are more women wanting to enter surgery. So presumably the programs that the college has put in place are affecting workplace culture where women are willing to pursue a career in surgery. Okay, Ria, I want to come back to the paper. You talk about the research kind of suggests that the solution to some of these issues is to create interventions that actually don't focus unduly on gender. Why is that? Yeah, so Josephine said the key word earlier, which is intersectionality. Any program that isolates one particular aspect of a person disproportionately to their actual abilities as a surgeon does tend to isolate them and objectify them. And so the women in our study reported that actually the way that the women in surgery programs had been rolled out had had a number of untoward effects. So the first was that people assumed that they must be there because they were a woman, not because they were any good at the job they did. And there were some disparaging remarks about that. The second was that emphasising their feminine characteristics by saying that this is a woman in surgery rather than a surgeon who happens to be a woman meant that it actually emphasised their female characteristics and exaggerated gender behaviours such as, you know, catcalling, sexual harassment and comments from male colleagues. And the last effect which really worried us was that good men fall silent. So those who would otherwise have liked to extend their friendship to their female colleagues really felt that because the women were sort of being put out on a pedestal, they were afraid perhaps that they would be accused of um, genderised behaviour and so they withdrew their mentorship and their support and in a profession that's 87% male that's a very significant problem that women are not socialised or networked by the majority of their colleagues. Do you feel like there's been somewhat of a cultural shift and that things are moving in a positive direction? 
Absolutely, there has been. You know, a lot of it is due to the hard work of people like Christine and myself and many others. You know, it really has taken a village. We're also supported by really good he-for-she action. You know, we've had really good male leadership and male colleagues who have been very supportive of this. We are talking about things that we wouldn't have dared talk about five or ten years ago. And I'm very heartened in a way that I've created so much work for myself because women do report and they do complain and they do come forward and let us know about these and we have to deal with it at a college level. But the point is, we didn't see that five or ten years ago. And so even though it looks like we've got this burgeoning problem, in actual fact, what we're really doing is just uncovering a terrible iceberg that's always been there. Christine, what's been your experience? I think things are certainly changing. When I went through as a medical student, I did not encounter many female surgeons who were consultants. So certainly the workplace is definitely changing, as well as the diversity of the consultant surgeons who are working in the hospital system. There are certainly a lot more support mechanisms so that when someone is having a problem, you know, we do have mechanisms for our trainees. So I'm really optimistic for the future. And and Josephine, what are you what's kind of your priorities in terms of working particularly with medical students and junior doctors? What we've found with level is that our activism and our policy and our research is much stronger when we ground it in a really intersectional approach and when we discuss it from a whole of gender perspective. So in that context, what we've been doing is we have a couple of different workshop programs because it's very easy to say, you know, what we need is cultural change and wait for top-down approaches to that. But what people really need is practice at using conversational tools to start creating that cultural change from their own workplaces out. That's really an area that we're going to be focusing on over the next year is to try and teach medical students and junior doctors those skills. Terrific. Well, thank you, all three of you, for doing all the work that you're doing. Ria, Christine and Josephine, thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Ria Liang, Dr. Christine Lai and Dr. Josephine de Costa. And according to the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, 22% of the college's latest graduating cohort were women. Well, for years, consumer health technology has been criticised for overlooking women as customers, instead building devices for a default male consumer. Things, however, are starting to change. Women's health technology is a growing multi-million dollar market. And in recent years, we've seen a flood of period trackers, pink fitness bands and pelvic health gadgets. The increased focus on women's health and well-being is seemingly good news, but concerns have been raised about the industry's health claims and privacy practices. Just last week, a Wall Street Journal investigation found one of the most popular ovulation trackers was telling Facebook when a user is having their period or intending to get pregnant. I don't know about you, but to me that sounds a little like a storyline from The Handmaid's Tale. So let's take a look. Ariel Bogle is a technology reporter with ABC Science and she joins me now in the studio. Ariel, welcome to The Health Report. Hi, thanks for having me. Before we get to the Wall Street Journal investigation, let's first talk about women's health tech more generally. So what kind of apps are we seeing pop up in this space and and how many women are using them? Well, it's hard to get clear numbers on just how many women are using this type of tech, but the stats from the Apple App Store and as well the Android App Store show that these apps are exceedingly popular and growing. There are a lot of period trackers. If you go to the Apple App Store at the moment, you can see immense number of free period trackers as well as paid ones. Then there are just general health apps around heart health, fitness, of course, people tracking their activity, their calories. 
Okay, for women who are using particularly like these period tracking apps, I use one, for example, and the information that you're giving is pretty sensitive. So it's not just your cycle. Some of them invite you to kind of divulge details of your sex drive, of your overall mood, your body temperature, measurements like that. How do we know what apps are sharing sensitive information with third parties? Well, this is where this whole space gets messy. So there's been a boom in technology around women's health and not just because women are 50% of the world's population, but also because you can make money off them and money is also data. So a lot of the apps out there, especially free ones, do collect a lot of information about the health of the women wearing it, as you mentioned, when they might be having their period, uh, their heart rate, other details that they're adding there. And you really have to read the terms and conditions or do a little research before you can fully get the picture of what they're doing with your data. So a lot of them will say, we absolutely protect your data, but in the fine print, they might say, we'll share some key indicators with third parties, whether it be advertisers, whether it be any other type of firm. Mm, And we obviously, so we saw that recently with this Wall Street Journal investigation that I mentioned. So they were looking into some of the most popular health apps that they found were providing Facebook with some of that really sensitive information. I'm assuming that's for Facebook to use for advertising purposes. I mean, why would they be passing on that info? It's interesting in this story. It's not clear that this data is being passed on for advertising, rather that a lot of these apps are using some Facebook analytics tools, tools that help them figure out um, things about the app, whether it's working well, how many people are using it. One uh, that's relevant here is called Flows Health. It's a period and ovulation tracker. And it was apparently, according to the Wall Street Journal, telling Facebook when a user was having her period or informed the app of an intention to get pregnant. This information, Facebook says, shouldn't have been sent to them in the first place and they were going to delete it and, you know, take care of it. But it does show the messiness of the back end of a lot of this technology. And it's really hard for users to know exactly what's being done with their data. Mm, And it's interesting because we, I think most people know that Facebook is kind of harvesting really extraordinary amounts of data about its users. But I suppose what's surprising in this case is just how detailed and intimate some of that data is. Do you think we're kind of sliding down this scale of ever more intensive data mining in terms of the type of information we're, we're handing over? Yes, it's an interesting question because on the one hand, people like myself that write about technology or privacy advocates, people in the health space, are increasingly nervous about the digitization of health. But on the other hand, these apps are exceedingly useful. A lot of women use period trackers or health trackers to get grips on their health. A lot of the time, that convenience of these apps really outweighs those privacy considerations. Right. And the more and the more data you give, I guess, the more personalized it can be. Exactly. The smarter versions of these period trackers and other apps, your experience improves the more you share with them. But I will say that I think a lot of governments, a lot of regulators aren't on top of this issue. And in a lot of cases, even in Australia, our laws are being completely outpaced by technology when it comes to health data. Okay. And just lastly, as someone who's clearly very in the know in this space, I mean, is it a bad idea to be signing up to these apps? I'm using one of these menstrual trackers and I'm kind of rethinking that decision. Look, personally, I don't use one. But that's my personal paranoia, potentially. (laughs) I would say I would advise against using free ones. If a product is free, you need to really interrogate the business case behind it because almost undoubtedly they are taking your data and monetizing it in some way or at the very least running ads. So for something as important and personal as a period tracker, 
I would perhaps advise looking at some of the paid options and weighing up whether it's worth paying for it. The other interesting thing about this whole picture around women's health is that we talk a lot about period trackers and fertility trackers. There's lots around based around getting pregnant or taking care of children. But there's a huge market out there for women that are not interested in getting pregnant or who may no longer even be getting their period, women who are going through menopause or postmenopause. So I think that the tech space is still neglecting a lot of women and a lot of women's experiences. So that's part of this picture too. Ariel, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Ariel Bogle is a technology reporter with ABC Science. And you can hear more of Ariel on Download This Show this Friday. She'll be part of RN's all female lineup for International Women's Day. And a program not to miss this week is Science Friction with Natasha Mitchell, which features one of the world's first recipients of a uterus transplant. You'll meet Lolita, whose sister donated her uterus to her. I don't know, maybe sound crazy, but for us, it was just like I was borrowing a sweater from her. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but it's, Borrowing it's, a so, sweater. it's always been so natural. <laughs> oh, a uterus, a sweater. What's the difference? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you didn't really even had to have to have the conversation, it seems. No. I imagine that would be difficult and hard. And today it's just so normal. She's the same aunt. It's just so normal. And I don't feel like I own her anything. You don't owe her anything? No. Thirteen babies have been born via transplanted uteruses so far, with more to come this year. Lolita's little boy was baby number four. Tune into Science Friction and the series called Future Uterus, Sundays at 5pm or Thursday mornings at 11.30, and of course, any time as a podcast. I'm Olivia Willis, and you've been listening to The Health Report on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.